Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. Generosity is inspiring, especially when it seems motivated by no other reason than simply to give. I read the story of a young man named Dylan who donated one of his good kidneys to a complete stranger. Now, when someone does that, they're referred to as an altruistic donor because they didn't give their kidney to a loved one, someone that they were connected to, which is itself still sacrificial, but makes more sense, right? We're connected. An altruistic donor who hears about the need signs up to give part of their own body (laughs) to someone they've never met and they likely will never meet. And they do it simply to help. And the need is great. In 2017, almost 100,000 people in the U.S. were waiting for a kidney transplant. Another 3,000 are added to that waiting list every month. And in 2017, 13 people per day died waiting for a kidney. Uh, Quoting from the John Hopkins article that I read, for Dylan, his inspiration for donating a kidney was simple. It was an opportunity to help someone else. His journey to become a living kidney donor began a few years earlier when he read an article about people donating kidneys to strangers. His studies in ethics and moral philosophy as a student at Harvard University further fueled his interest. Dylan said, I took a lot of classes about how to think about morality and how to see your obligations to other people, explains Dylan. In class, I kept coming back again to the concept that if you have the opportunity to help someone at a low cost to yourself, you should go for it. I think he might define low cost slightly differently than I do, but that kind of generosity is inspiring, isn't it? And it raises today's question for us. What motivates people to give? Whether we're considering financial giving for any cause at all, or whether it's donating time, or expertise, or even the more extreme example of kidney donation, what motivates giving? Any ideas? I mean, maybe there is just the chance to make a difference. And that motivates the giving of a lot of people, I think. Or perhaps it's the good feeling you get for giving to something that's going to make a difference. Or perhaps motivated, some giving is motivated by the guilt that we may feel that all that we do have, and maybe by giving it can minimize some of that guilt. Others, let's be honest, are motivated by recognition, by a legacy, by a big building with their name on it. Maybe maybe we could be motivated by our duty. 
Just our sense that this is the right thing to do. A feeling of responsibility, a feeling of accountability. There's also, I think, those who are motivated because it's a way of giving back. Gratitude, perhaps to a school or to a cause or uh, to a certain person or something like that because they've received from that same organization or church or school. I think others are motivated to give because they want to support a certain person or a certain initiative that touches their heart and their lives. Or maybe some people even give just because they don't want to be the people who don't give or didn't give. The truth is there's lots of motivations behind people's giving. And some are good, some are probably terrible, and others, if we're honest, are kind of mixed. And I think that's true in our own lives as well. What motivates our giving? I guess we kind of need to ask the question, though, do motivations even matter? I mean, if people are giving, and people do give, and that giving helps people who are in need Who cares about the reasons they're doing it? What does that matter? As long as the gift makes a difference, has the needed effect, should we even be concerned? Well, apparently, Jesus is concerned about our motivations for giving. Because giving, it turns out, in the kingdom of God at least, isn't the end-all and be-all. Why we give actually matters. Yes, where we give matters and, 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 and how we do that, that matters for sure. And it brings incredible good to the world. It is powerfully important. But Jesus helps us see beyond that, or maybe you could say underneath that. He wants us to explore our motivations for giving. Seeing that, our very motivations can actually lead to greater good in us or conversely, to tremendous harm in us. What motivates our giving can actually lead to an increase of Christ-likeness in us. It can grow us spiritually. Or it can actually lead to a kind of spiritual deformation. That as we give from a wrong motivation, it can lead us further and further away from the image of Christ. So Jesus asks, what motivates our giving? Through the season of Lent, we're going to let Jesus probe our motivations. And on more than just giving. In Matthew 6, Jesus starts with giving. But then he moves on to prayer, then fasting. And then he plunges even deeper into what makes us tick from the very inside. What drives our worried lives? What occupies our daily thoughts? And how we even think and perceive each other and ourselves. It's going to be quite a tour, I think, behind the closed doors of our hearts and lives. And if we let him, Jesus, like a skillful surgeon, he will cut through the exterior fascia and will help us take a close look at what is actually hiding inside of us. Is it infected? Is it cancerous? Is it healthy? 
vibrant or a bit anemic? Does it need a good dose of something or some kind of corrective surgery? And like an expert doctor, Jesus will do this for our good. Yes, diagnosis can be frightening and surgery can be daunting, but getting clearer on what's happening in here, in me, in us, getting honest about our need for Jesus to cut out or seal up or rearrange or fix what's inside of us. Yes, that can be a painful process, but the result is life-changing. And the goal of Dr. Jesus is that you and I would become holier, healthier, more joyful, and more Christ-like. More exactly what Jesus wants you and I to be. And so through the season of Lent, we're going to let Jesus speak to us through his own words, starting here in Matthew chapter 6, moving through that whole chapter into the first few verses of chapter 7, all this over the next six weeks of Lent. We're going to let Jesus explore behind the closed doors of our lives and hearts. Are you willing to let let him take us there? I hope so. How does Jesus start today? He strikes a tone of warning. Verse 1 of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Be careful. This caution to not practice your righteousness, or depending on your translation, it might say, do good deeds or even perform acts of piety. He warns us not to do that for the purpose of being seen by others. And this is actually something that Jesus is going to apply to these next couple of practices he addresses. It seems that then, as well as now, we can find even the best of actions, good deeds, acts of righteousness, for crying out loud, can be motivated by what we get more than by what we're giving. The righteousness that Jesus is referring to has to do with some particular practices of piety within the Jewish faith. External actions that were performed in order to express devotion to God. An act of love. An act of worship. And in this chapter, three are detailed. Giving, then prayer, and then fasting, all of which are good, helpful, holy practices. But Jesus then digs into the motivation that's behind them. Today, we'll let Jesus ask us about our motivation for giving. See how Jesus takes that overarching warning about, you know, be careful not to do this in front of others just to be seen by them. He takes that overarching warning and now he applies it directly to giving. Verse 2 in Matthew chapter 6. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand 
Know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Let's let the words of Jesus sink in a little bit by looking into a few things. Before we even get to the motivations, I think it's important to notice that Jesus assumes the practice of giving to those who are in need. Did you see that? Giving is just assumed in here. Jesus does not say, if you give, or, you know, some of you might give. No. He says, when you give to the needy, and he says it twice. Giving is assumed. As far as Jesus is concerned, giving to the needy, taking our money and addressing needs in the world is part and parcel to the kingdom of God life. And some of you actually need to hear this because you might be new to the church. You might be new to the Christian faith or new to following Jesus. And the idea of giving your hard-earned cash or resources to help those who are struggling might actually be new information to you. To know that this is part of the Christian life, it would be important for you to know that. But the truth is, this is not something that arrived fresh on the scene when Jesus showed up here in Palestine. God wove generous giving into the very DNA of his covenant people right at the very start. God cares deeply for the poor and the marginalized. This is evidenced all through scripture, and he gave clear commands throughout the Mosaic law, detailing his expectation that his people would structure their life together and live in generous ways toward those who are in need. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 15, we read this. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. God's heart for the poor is expressed throughout the whole of Scripture. Think of the gleaning laws about leaving some crops in the field for the poor to come and gather. Laws which played a central role in one of Jesus' own great, 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 great grandmothers, Ruth, who was actually the grandmother of King David. God expects his people to be generous. And why not? They've received incredible generosity from God. God literally poured out his bounty and his blessing on his people with new land, with incredible privilege, just flowing over to them. But as we all know, what God expects and commands is not often what becomes normative or even ingrained in people's lives. And while we do see in among God's covenant people examples of incredible generosity like Boaz in the book of Ruth, we also see a stinginess and a hard-heartedness that is sadly human. For generous giving to flow from a generous heart 
our hearts need fixing. But here's something telling. After the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, when the Holy Spirit has come and has filled this first community of Jesus' followers, the result was an overflowing of generosity. In Acts chapter 4, it details the story or captures a picture of this early community. And we hear these words. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed to have any of their possessions as their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them and work, at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money to this, uh, from the sales to the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Generous giving expresses the central reality of our Christian lives. We are people who've received God's lavish gift of life through Jesus Christ. It's been poured into our lives by the Holy Spirit. And in gratitude, in response to God's gift, we live and give generously as a lifestyle. It expresses who we are. Or at least that is what God intends. That is how Jesus instructs and commands. But you see, even as giving becomes normal, even in this, these first followers of Jesus, even as people who've experienced the generosity of God begin to live in generous ways, and, and generosity is encouraged and affirmed, and we see it being played out, it also can create a shadow side in us. Seeing how good and right generous living is, we can slip into doing the giving for reasons other than gratitude to God or for the purpose of honoring him. We can, if we're not careful, start to give for what we can get. And when that happens, something starts to die in us. Something begins to shrink inside of us. We start to lose our grasp of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Something begins to slip away from us. What God longs for us to experience, the heart and the life of Jesus in us, begins to be threatened. Which is why we need Jesus to pose these motivation questions to us. Even in the early church in Acts, where we see this incredible display of generosity, the problem immediately crops up. Just after that example is given, resulting in no needy persons among this early community, which is an incredible statement, we read the famous story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. This husband and wife saw how people were living generously, even selling land and houses and giving it to the apostles and how those being distributed to people who had needs. They saw that. They saw how people were being celebrated for that giving. Maybe even how people were being admired for the sacrifices they had made. And instead of seeing it as as an expression of, of their gratitude to God, they suddenly wanted to get some of that acclaim for themselves. They, they wanted to be 
admired. They, they wanted to be seen as generous people. They wanted to get some of that same honor and attention. And so they cooked up a plan. Instead of actually being generous, they acted deceitfully. They sold some assets, but they held back a portion of the money while at the same time posing as though they're giving it all to Jesus, sacrificing it all for the gospel, for the needs of the poor. Instead of stopping to examine their own motivations for giving in response to God's generosity, for God's sake, they moved rather to give for their own sake, for their own glory. And the result of their fraudulent deception was deadly. What motivates our giving matters. And we hear it over and over in the New Testament. God loves a cheerful giver. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Freely you've received. Freely give. It's all over the place. Giving as God intends flows from our hearts motivated by a, by a God orientation, by a gratitude for who, who he is and what he's done, by hearts filled by the Holy Spirit and enlarged by his goodness, not tainted by a need for some public acclaim or recognition. Which brings us to the heart of Jesus' invitation today. Why do we give? Or maybe more to the point, who are we giving for? Jesus challenges us in a way that might seem a bit odd to our ears because, let's be honest, I don't think you've been tempted to hire a trumpeteer just as you decide to give a gift to, you know, World Vision or to the church, have you? I mean, it does seem a bit odd. But clearly, there were people who were doing this. And yet, if we'll let him, Jesus is inviting us to take a real look behind our own closed doors, underneath our own skin, deep down in our own hearts, and just ask the question, am I giving to look a certain way? Am I giving out of a motivation that isn't really because of God and his honor? Am I even giving so that others will see me as holy and good and, 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 and godly? Am I giving for me? And we all approach this in different ways. I know that, depending on our background, depending on our understanding. I don't want us to be thrown by Jesus' particular example here, especially if it doesn't directly apply to you. What Jesus is inviting us to consider is who we are giving for. What reward are we giving? Uh, uh, what reward are we hoping to get from our giving? Are we looking to get the reward that we would get from others or maybe just even from a good feeling? Or are we, like Jesus said, are we giving because we actually are looking to the Father for his reward? This is powerful. Jesus gives very clear instructions here about what they are to do, what we are to do to counter this tendency we have the tendency we have to give for some sort of immediate personal results, whether that's honor from others or just an expression of gratitude or, you know, regard or whatever it is. And so Jesus says quite powerfully, he says, give, but do it in secret. Give generously, but do it anonymously. Give for a reward, but not for the reward of others. Give for the rewards of the Father himself. 
He invites us, in fact, to go behind a closed door and give from there. How does that sit with you? Where does that connect with you? Let me ask you this, though. We think about this. We think about privacy. We think about giving in secret. Does that mean we should never talk about our giving? Sometimes I think that's exactly what it's meant. Um, even the phrase, don't let your right hand, left hand know what they're doing, has been taken to mean that we just never, ever talk about giving. We never speak about it. Just complete silence. Give it all. You know, whatever we give is just incredibly private. And there's value in that. I get it. But I actually think that there's times when that's been taken too far. That instead of understanding what Jesus was trying to, trying to do here, which is to counter a base motivation that was misguided and wrong, we just make everything private so that we never even have an opportunity to talk about that. We do it in ways that maybe aren't even that helpful. And the truth is, when we look in the New Testament, in the whole of Scripture, there's good examples of public giving. We just read one. Or pledges given. That has a real place in the Christian life where we're able to challenge each other and even be accountable to each other for certain gifts. What's more, there are people who need to be coached and taught and be shown examples of what giving looks like. I remember a number of years ago here at the Erickson Covenant Church talking to a new follower of Jesus who no one had ever spoken to about giving. And in his particular life, he would come on a Sunday and he would give 10 bucks, 20 bucks. And in his mind, he was being incredibly generous. Now, proportional to what he was making, it was a pittance. It was like pocket change. But no one had ever shared with him about some of the principles of giving in Scripture, giving proportionally, giving a percentage, maybe aiming for 10 as a starting place or, or 8 as a starting It doesn't matter, but... No one ever talked about that. And when he first finally had a conversation with a Christian who just modeled proportional giving, that they tried to give 10% or 15% or tried to do this and tried to give to this organization and try to give a good amount to the church, whatever, he was stunned by this information because no one had ever spoken to him about it before. And it instantly changed his giving. His giving went way up. Because for him, he was suddenly evaluating his giving in light of what he received, and he was being taught and shown, given an example of what that might look like. So sometimes talking about giving is really important. But being willing to question, or being willing to let Jesus question our hidden motivations for that giving is also very important. He wants his people to be motivated by giving that is ultimately about glory to God and the rewards that he will give. I hope this can help us reflect together for ourselves. And hear this invitation of Jesus. He's very simply saying to us, examine our motives. And we can do that. We can do that during Lent. We can do that right now. What are my motives? And then as we examine that, to realize, even to state it, I want to be a follower of Jesus I want to be a person who gives out of gratitude. Who gives because I'm, I'm just so grateful to God. I'm so grateful to others. I'm giving out of that abundance. I'm not giving in order to get something. I'm giving because God is good and he's given me so much. And to trust in that 
that God will still see that giving and reward it in ways that we can't even possibly imagine. And when we repent of that, when we repent of those lesser motivations or those things that could be getting us off the tracks, when we begin to live and give from what we've received and for God's glory, what we'll find is that the Holy Spirit will use that repentance and that giving itself to form us more and more into the image of Jesus himself. Jesus who gave himself up for our good and for the honor of his Father. And he found in his Father the highest reward. Well, let's apply this really quickly as we finish today. I want to invite you today, this week as follows, here in the first week of Lent, to ask why you give. Take some time and reflect on that. Maybe jot down some of the reasons. Don't be afraid to be open and transparent. Be authentic and honest with yourself about some of your mixed motivations, some of the things that tick you off if you're not recognized or something goes wrong or if I don't get receded, whatever. Acknowledge it. Be honest. Let Jesus probe your heart and mind for the motivations behind your giving. This is something you can journal about. This is something I encourage you to talk about with a spiritual friend. Be open and honest about it. Because in that, the Holy Spirit can speak. And then respond to what is revealed during that time. Do what Jesus said. Give in a way that counters that motivation. That bad motivation, that is. Um, Give in a way that that leads to the kind of motivations Jesus is pointing us to. Motivation for God's glory and for his reward. Very concretely, you could depend on your financial place in life. Take a gift of some kind. Go down to the bank and take out a brown one or a few of them. I don't know. Maybe for you, 20 bucks is a real stretch. Maybe for you, you need to pull out 500. But take a gift this month and deliberately give it away anonymously with no chance of anyone ever finding out and no receipt either. I'm not speaking against receipts, of course, but my point in this is to deliberately this month make a gift purely out of the act of response to what Jesus has said where you're going to give completely anonymously and in secret for the Father's reward. And after you've done that, you've given it away to a needy neighbor or a global cause, I don't care where, after you've done that, the third step is reflect on what that was like. How did that feel? Um, where was that uncomfortable? You know, how is it challenging the way you've normally given? Reflect on that prayerfully. Again, maybe with a spiritual friend, but reflect on that. And, and try to discern where's the Holy Spirit leading you in your giving. Jesus leads us to question our motives for our good. It's not to press us down. It's not to make us feel guilty or bad. But rather, to lead us to the Father for His honor, 
for his reward that certainly will include joy now, but riches later that we can't even dream of. And Jesus knew what this was all about because he was literally living this out for us right at the moment that he was teaching this. He was doing everything he was doing for the honor and the acclaim of the Father only. You can get a lot from others. Yeah, there was times when there was crowds around. But there was times when everyone had left him, when his own hometown ridiculed him. And then, of course, when he'd eventually be humiliated and rejected and crucified on a cross. And because of that, because of what Jesus did, even this gentle probing of us, exploring our motivations, he can do that in a way that leads us to life. It doesn't make us feel guilty or ashamed or pressed down. Because what we recognize is that Jesus has already offered the perfectly motivated gift to the Father, and he did it for us. The gift has been given. We're not laboring under this, trying to get God to be pleased with me as I give. No. Rather, we're looking to Jesus, who's already acted for us. And when he did it, he did it by looking only to his Father, only for his honor, giving all of himself to him. He was the ultimate altruistic donor. And what did God do in response? Philippians 2 says it perfectly. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the ultimate offering. What did God do? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus gave for us and received the Father's reward. And I can't think of any better way to celebrate that than by going to the table of communion together. And so I want to lead you through our time of communion. I want to use a liturgy that's a little different than we've used. Uh, We have used this in the past, but it's different than the one we've been using. And so receive this where you are today. Receive this call to communion in the words of Jesus who said, Come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Friends, at the invitation of Jesus, we come and we confess our sins together. Would you confess this with me? Forgive us, most gracious God, for what we have done to bring pain to your beautiful world. Our hard and unkind words, our careless and thoughtless deeds, our lack of compassion and reluctance to render aid, when it was in our power to help. Amen. And now, 
upon your confession of sin, receive these words of assurance. Through the cross of Christ, God has had mercy on you, pardons you, and sets you free. Know that you are forgiven and be at peace. God strengthen you in all goodness and keep you in eternal life. Amen. In the early centuries of the Christian faith, faithful Christians bore witness to the truth of God's revelation in Christ by the Spirit, and they often did it in opposition to false and harmful ideas about Jesus. And from those years, we received the gift of various creeds, which express and summarize the heart of the Christian faith, and they've been confessed down through the ages by the communion of saints. I invite you now to join me in expressing together with these faithful witnesses our faith in the words of one of those gifts given to us called the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who was spoken through the prophets. We believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Hear the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as they were delivered to us by the Apostle Paul. For I passed on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread. And he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Would you join me in a prayer? I'm choosing this prayer uh, directly uh, from a woman uh, called uh, Phyllis Tickle. 
And it's specifically a Lenten prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, you hate nothing you have made and forgive the sins of all who are penitent. Create and make in us new and contrite hearts that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of you, the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, invites us to come to the table of Holy Communion, through which he will give of himself to us and lead us into deeper fellowship with one another. Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. The body of Christ, the blood of Christ. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for your life given to us, for your willingness to stand in our place. Now, having celebrated your love, we receive your blessing even as we go. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.